So I had intended last week, <clears throat> excuse me, when we did the overview to also cover verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. But the overview went a little long and we didn't have time. So this morning we'll look briefly at verses 1 and 2. There's a lot there. Um, we'll just take a brief look and then focus most of our attention on verses 3 and 4 this morning. So I'm not certain how long it'll take to go through this section, but there is so much rich theology. There's so much amazing truth about God and Christ and his work. I just don't want to rush through it. So we'll, we'll take the pace that we think is best and, and do that. So if you haven't opened your Bible, I invite you to open to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. Then we'll pray and we'll begin for this morning. So Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Let's pray together. Lord, we read in the Psalms that you have exalted above everything else your name and your word. And we also read, Lord, that your word is firmly fixed in heaven. And through all of history, you have preserved this book for us. You have exalted above everything else your word and your name. And so this morning, Lord, as we begin to see amazing realities from your word, we pray that that would be true among us, that we would exalt your word. We would exalt your name above every other name. Because you are the only one who is worthy of that exaltation, Lord. I pray that as we work through this section that we would see our rightful place as your creation and your rightful exaltation as our creator. You are worthy of all of our praise, all of our love, all of our affections. But we need your help to feel those appropriately. So this morning, Lord, I, I feel my own inability. I feel my own lack in certain areas, Lord, and I pray that you'd strengthen me in the preaching of your word. Strengthen each one of these brothers and sisters in the hearing of your word this morning. And would we come away from here loving you more than when we came. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So like I said, as we start for this morning, let's take a look at verses 1 and 2, and then we'll move on. But as we look at these first two verses, I think, if you're a note taker, you can see this is kind of our first point. We see Paul's authority in his writing, and he lays out for us some reasons why he is authoritative in what he says. He uses his customary greeting, as he does in seven other letters, when he says, grace and peace. But before he gets there, he explains why he has the authority to be writing this letter to these churches. He says that first, he is an apostle of Christ Jesus, and that second, his apostleship is by the will of God. And we see this in Paul's case is is really clear that he was set apart for this ministry. If you look at uh, 1 Timothy 1, 
verse 12, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. So we get kind of a very clear explanation that Paul was appointed by the risen Christ to this ministry of being an apostle. And just as a side note, I would mention that there are no longer apostles among us today. That was a unique office given to a small group of men at the inception or the start of the early church to show the glory of God and to display the value of the gospel in very unique ways. And the way that someone came to be an apostle was that they saw the risen Christ and were commissioned by him for his service. So Paul says that in writing as an apostle, it gives him the authority, but he also says that he is an apostle by or according to the will of God. We're going to look more closely at God's will in the coming weeks, but I think here Paul adds this detail to reinforce the idea that he's not just speaking his own message. This is God's will. God approves of the message that Paul is speaking because he received it from God. He is an apostle of Jesus by the will of God. Then looking at the last half of verse 1, maybe your version says something like, the letter was addressed to the saints in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And faithful is certainly a good rendering of the word used there. Another good way to translate that word would be to say they are believers or believing in Christ Jesus. And I don't think Paul's necessarily trying to make a distinction between faithful believers and unfaithful believers here. Um, He's writing to people who have been saved. It's written to those who are believers in Jesus. And so believers might be a better translation, but faithful is also good. And as I mentioned a moment ago, then Paul starts this letter with his go-to greeting. If you look at Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, Philemon, 2 Thessalonians, they all use this greeting that includes the theme of grace and peace. And so while this is fairly standard for Paul, one of the unique things about Ephesians is that he bookends the whole letter with this theme. He starts with grace and peace to you, and he ends in chapter 6 with the same theme. I'm going to knock that over if I get too wild, so I'll just spin that over there. So it's really unique that he uses these. And last week we talked about some of the main themes of the book. Remember that? We talked about being united to Christ, and we talked about some other things that are main themes. And I think grace and peace could certainly be considered a main theme of this book. Chapters 1, 2, 3, we see the workings of God's grace in providing a salvation for his people. And then in 4, 5, and 6, we see what it looks like to live a life of peace. Grace and peace to you. So now we're going to look at verses 3 and 4. For this morning and see uh, number two or point number two, like I said, if you like to kind of follow along with where I'm going, I think we're going to start seeing the blessing of being chosen. So verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul starts this section with what some people call a song or a hymn of praise to God blessing him for his redemptive work and drawing attention to what God has done in the past and also to what our hope is in the future, as we'll see when we get to 13, 14, that we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. This is actually a very common theme in the Bible. If you think about the theme of the author 
telling us or blessing God with us and then listing out different reasons why we should bless him. Again, we spoke a little bit about this last week with when the Bible tells us to do something, it'll also tell us why we should do that or how we can do that. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Psalm 103, which we just sang part of in that second song. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and steadfast love. So David in this psalm is saying, bless the Lord, praise God, here's why. He redeemed you, he crowns your life, he lists out all of these benefits for us. Likewise in 1 Peter, which Scott just read, Peter starts by saying, very similar to Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he lists out all of these blessings that flow from being united to Christ. He has caused us to be born again, he's given us a living hope. We have an inheritance that's secure in heaven and a faith that will endure through trials. So we see that we're to bless God and we see then why we can bless him. And I think the same type of thing is happening here in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul is giving praise and blessing to God because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing and then he goes on to articulate or tell us what these blessings are. Now, a couple important observations about this. Notice that the blessings are a result of being united to Christ or being in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The way that you and I participate in these blessings is by being united to Jesus through faith. And we'll see as we move on the book. It's not something that we can do. It's something that happens to us. You you cannot make yourself united to Jesus. That's a work of God's grace in doing that. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 will make this really clear when we get there. So the blessings come in Christ. That is their source. The source of the blessing is Jesus. Also, we could ask, what and where are these blessings? Paul says they are spiritual blessings. It's what they are. And where they are is in the heavenly places. And I think this should help us to understand that Paul is referring primarily to spiritual reality, not physical or tangible things necessarily. Unfortunately, far too often when the message of Christianity is explained and exclaimed, the focus is often put on how it can benefit us right now and what blessings can God give me. Come to Christ and have financial blessing or come to Christ and your, your relational problems will be over and these kinds of things. And that's just not, that's not the reality. I actually heard a television preacher say, when you donate to our ministry, you're buying lumber for your mansion in heaven. And we we kind of laugh at that as like a goofy sort of salesmanship, but that, that's, that's a message being spoken. That is not what Paul has in mind here. He is not talking about coming to Christ and experiencing this great life for the next 20 years. He's talking about spiritual blessings. 
And we're going to see him list out what those blessings are. And so just to get an idea in our heads of what we're going to be seeing, I listed these out from verses 1 to 14. We have been chosen. These are the blessings. We have been predestined in love. We've been adopted into God's family. We have redemption through the blood of Jesus. We have grace lavishly given to us. The mystery of God's will has been made known to us, which wasn't in the past. We have obtained an inheritance, and we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I think one of the goals that Paul has in in stacking all of these things up in these 14 verses is to overwhelm us with the grace of God. When we read this list and consider all that God has done for us in Christ, the things of earth, as the song says, should grow strangely dim. So as we work through the section, I just invite you over the next weeks to pray with me. Pray that in your heart and in our church, God would reveal the glory of his grace in ways that we haven't seen. That's what this chapter is about, the glory of God's grace in providing a salvation for undeserving people. So pray with me that God would do that in our church. Let's start looking at these blessings individual as we come to verse 4. So verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now we're getting into very deep and wide doctrines. And we're getting into some really amazing things that we're going to learn about God together. So when we come to verse 4, I want to take each of those phrases and make sure that we understand what Paul is saying So we're going to look at being chosen. We're going to look at being chosen in Christ, what the significance of that is. We're going to look at the choosing being before the foundation of the world and what that means. And then we'll look at the purpose of the choosing. And I think for this morning, we're only going to be able to cover the first one and we'll pick it up in the rest of verse 4 next week. So first, God chose us. Before the world was created, before time began, the Bible tells us that God chose or set apart a people for his own possession. This is what's known as the doctrine of election. If you've heard that word, not what's coming in November, this is far more significant. It's the doctrine of election, meaning God, in his free and sovereign grace, chooses some people to be saved through faith in Jesus, not because of any merit or work that they do, but because of his good pleasure and grace. God the Father, in exercising a right to choose a people for himself, does does not look into the future. We'll talk about this a little bit more next week. He does not look into the future and determine... Well, that person's going to be pretty good. I can see they'll be a little bit more pliable, maybe, maybe do a little bit better, and I, I think I'll save that person. That is not the way that God's choosing works. And like I said, we'll talk about this later. It is not based on what we do. And God did not look ahead and find out who would be the best candidate for his grace and say, I'll save that person because they deserve it. The Bible is abundantly clear It is by faith and grace 
that we're saved, the grace of God and the faith that he gives to us. There's a lot of passages that talk about this. Scott alluded to some of them, but I just want to read you two or three of them because Ephesians makes it really clear, but sometimes when we see supporting scriptures, it helps us to realize this is a very broad theme through all of scripture. So I want to just read you a couple of these things to affirm the fact that God has indeed exercised his right as creator to choose a people for himself. 2 Thessalonians 2 In verse 13, Paul says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you to be saved through the sanctification of the Spirit and the belief in truth. In his first letter to the Thessalonians, he says a very similar thing. He says, For we know, brothers, who are loved by God, that he has chosen you. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of works that we've done in righteousness, right? It's not the act that we perform, but because of his mercy and grace which he gave us in Christ. Peter, like Scott just said in his first epistle, to those who are chosen exiles, elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. One more from the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas in the chapter 13 range, are preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And the Jewish people are getting really upset and jealous, not realizing now that the gospel was not only for an ethnic people, but for everyone, Jew and Gentile. And so they're getting upset about this. Paul continues to preach the gospel. And here's what chapter 13, verse 48 says. And when the Gentiles heard this, when they heard the message of faith in Jesus and salvation, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God, and as many as were appointed to salvation believed. God has determined who will be saved. It'd be very difficult to read the New Testament and not see God exercising his right in choosing a people for himself. So when here back in Ephesians, when Paul says that we should rejoice or bless God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he has chosen us, he's referring to God's gracious act of choosing a people for himself. And I know that there are many objections to this way of thinking. And I want to just deal with two common objections this morning. Because this is not something to shy away from. It's not something to hide from. This, as we see in the coming weeks, is something to glorify God for. It is a work of his grace. So two things that usually get brought up when we talk about God's electing or choosing a people for himself. First objection, someone might say, well, isn't it unfair of God to predetermine who would come to faith and then in doing that leave some that won't come to faith? Isn't it unfair And I think in order to answer this objection, we need to understand at least two things. More than that, but I'm going to say two this morning. We need to understand the condition of men apart from Christ. And we need to understand that God as creator has certain creator rights to do as he sees fit. So the natural man apart from God, as we're going to see later in Ephesians, is dead in his sin. If you think back to your life before Jesus, 
you didn't have the ability to come to him because faith is something given to us by God. There was no one who ever lived besides Jesus who was truly innocent or free of guilt. None of us measure up. None of us can do enough good things, which might sound like a really depressing statement. But when we understand that it's not by what we do, it's by the mercy of God that we're saved, it frees you from the burden of having to perform and having to do enough to earn God's favor. Therefore, I think that the question of fairness is really starting from somewhat of a wrong position or supposition. We shouldn't wonder why God chooses some and not others. I think we should marvel at the fact that God chooses anyone to be saved because of our condition apart from Christ. Like we saw in Romans 5 a few weeks ago, while we were still in our sin, Christ died for the ungodly. There was nothing beautiful about me or you. There's nothing to compel God to exercise grace. It was simply because of his love for you. The fact that God, God saves any of us is a testimony to his loving kindness and his grace. So given the state of sinful man, fairness would be God not choosing anyone. When we think about fairness, we think about it usually based on merit or what the person deserves. Well, that's fair because they X, Y, and Z. That's not the way it works in God's providence. The other thing that we need to understand is that God as creator has the right to do with his creation whatever he pleases. Now, Paul had addressed this kind of objection in Romans. The objection of, but isn't it unfair of God to do this? And in chapter 9, here's what he said in response. Verse 20, he says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why'd you make me like this? Has the potter no right over the pottery to make a vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? God as creator, being the one who made us, decides what happens. Think about it this way. Kids or children, let's say you make a, a project for school. Uh, color a picture or make a... They still make little houses out of popsicle sticks and that kind of thing. I mean, that's something like that. Let's say you make a project and you bring it home and you decide to give it to your grandma. Now at that point, is someone going to come up to you and say, you don't have the right to do that. I get to decide what you did with that. No, you made that project. That's yours. You can give it to whoever you want to give it to. Likewise, God has lovingly created us. He's given us a beautiful world to live in. And he has the right to do with us as he sees fit. And as we're going to see as we move on next week, this is done not in a cold, calculated way, but Paul says, in love, God chose us. So to say that God is unfair in choosing some doesn't, at least in my understanding, hold up. Given the nature of man's sinfulness outside of Christ and God's rights as creator. Another objection that comes up is this, more in the church than outside of it. If God already knows and has planned ahead who's going to be chosen, then why should we engage in evangelism? Why are we preaching the gospel? If God already has everything figured out, then what's the, what's the point? You ever heard that? I've heard that. And first, 
I would say that we engage in sharing the gospel. I get up here and preach, not because I think I can do a good job or convince you of something, but because I have confidence that I have been commanded by God to preach his word, just like you have been commanded to spread the gospel. Here's a couple texts. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. We've been commissioned by Jesus to carry his gospel. 2 Timothy 4, Paul says this in verse 1, I charge you, he's talking to Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing, preach the word. Preach it. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. We're commissioned to do this. A couple verses later in 2 Timothy chapter 4. It says, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, spread the message. 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to him. We have been commanded by God to carry his gospel and leave the results to him. It is not your job to convert somebody. That's God's work. Our job is to indiscriminately preach the gospel to everyone we see because that's the way that God has ordained that his word get out. It's the clear teaching of the New Testament that you and I as believers in Jesus have been tasked with this to share the good news and the gospel of Jesus with everyone. We spread the message. God does the saving. The second way to answer this, to say, well, why, why evangelize? Why do this? If God's already got it figured out. I don't see the point. Here's the point. We need to understand that God uses means to accomplish his end. You've heard the phrase, the ends justify the means? Not quite there, but here's what it means. In this case, God has looked ahead and has chosen a people for himself to be saved through faith in Jesus. That's the end. Okay, that's the goal. The means, or the way that he does that, is by you and I, by his church, preaching the gospel, because we know from Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. No one comes to Jesus apart from an understanding of what the gospel is. And how do they understand that except for they hear the message preached or spoken or sung or explained? God has ordained that the method by which this happens is by his people opening their mouths and proclaiming the good news. Of Jesus. It's also important that we understand how this works. Remember, we talked about the how and the why? Because of two things glory and credit. Glory and credit. When we understand that it's God who ultimately decides, there's no opportunity for us to look at our salvation and take credit for what happened. 
And if you don't know this by yet, know it now. God is jealous for his own glory. He doesn't share it with anybody else, as the Bible tells us. And so when he acts to save a person, the right response is for us to glorify him for that work, not to say, look what I did. It's about glory and credit. Think of the dozens of times in the New Testament where faith and grace are contrasted with works. Do you know why that is? It's so that we have our legs knocked out from under us and we don't take the credit for what God has done. Faith and works, grace and works contrasted. Paul says in Titus, it's not by works of righteousness that you have done, but it was according to his mercy that he saved us. In Romans 4, 5, now to him who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Or as we're going to see in chapter 2, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. If we were responsible for our salvation, you could rightly stand up before God and say, look what I did. And you'd have a basis to do that. But as it is, our salvation comes from Christ, comes from God, And it's all of his work so that in the end, he gets the credit, he gets the glory. That's the way that he set it up. The Bible is relentless in driving this home. We didn't save ourselves or contribute to our salvation. Therefore, we don't take the credit for it. God does. God does. Christian life is all about glory. Who gets it? And where we're headed with it. Who deserves it? When we understand, I think, the doctrine of election in particular, we see that it is God who is worthy. It's God who deserves and receives the glory. So this morning, we made it through the first point. And next week, we're going to pick up and we'll see that we are not only chosen, but we are chosen in Jesus We'll see the significance of being chosen before the foundation of the world. And then we'll look at the purpose, the why question of this choosing. And I, I, I just want to say I know that this is or can be a difficult thing to grasp. This is not something that you snap your fingers and immediately come into. It takes thought. It takes wrestling. It takes prayer. If this is something that you are just not there and you have questions If this morning brought more questions than answers, that's good. And I just invite you, talk to to me, talk to any one of our elders. We are, as a church, desirous that God get the glory for what he has done above everything else. So this is something that you still have questions about. Please, let's talk about it. It takes time. It takes prayer. And I want to do that with you. It's what a pastor does. So take advantage of that. Also, I just wanted to add as a note before we close and come to the table that um, there's a really interesting parallel between the book of Ephesians and 1 and 2 Timothy. So Paul wrote to Timothy, those two letters, while Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus. So you can look, and if you see some things in Ephesians, and you're like, I wonder why he's saying that. 
you can look at First and Second Timothy and see Paul detail a little bit more about some of the issues that were going on there. And it's really, really interesting. So I just encourage you, as you're reading, and whatever chapter of Ephesians we're in, I hope you're reading that chapter through the week. But also look at the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy. And you can see some really, really cool things that Paul is articulating there and doing. So let's pray together and we'll come to the table. Father, I thank you that we can read your word and we can come to varying degrees to the understanding that we did not accomplish our own salvation, but that you have done that through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that the things that we've heard and and seen this morning would not be a hindrance to our coming to you, but we would recognize them as the means of coming to you, Lord, that as your word is spoken, we know that that alone has the power. And so I pray, Lord, that over these coming weeks, you would use your word in powerful ways in our church, that we wouldn't hear these things and stiff arm what it says, but we would embrace them as the truth of your word, Lord, that this would be an encouragement to us, that it would be helpful in our understanding of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. So Father, work this in. Give give patience to us as we work through these things and understanding. Lord, your word says if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask and God who gives freely to all will give it to him. So God, we, we confess that we need your wisdom. We need your help. We ask that you do it in Christ's name. Amen.